and all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, nor our friends, since both these disturb the reason, but of ourselves. This chapter is not about your wife or son, nor about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It is about you and me. King commies, look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, dedicated to those deconstructing, reconstructing their faith. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And today's episode was another one with Daniel. It was a bit more sporadic than some of the past because uh, it was a lot less planned. We kind of hopped on and I had um, some quotes I wanted to read him and then we just kind of went from there. Um, but we ended up talking a little bit more about hell. I read from a book I've been reading with my small group, um, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. His old chapter dedicated to hell. So if you found what I read, it read interesting, you can read that for reference. You can read the whole chapter of the whole book. The whole book's very much worth it. And then after that, we talked about um, aspects of faith and works, aspects of what it means in like Petersonian and Jungian terms of being a monster and learning to control it. We talked about jujitsu as a superpower. Shout out to Jocko Willink. But yeah, kind of ended there. Uh, so I, it's a, again, it's a little bit more sporadic than normal, but in the end, I hope it's interesting. I hope it's helpful. I hope you like it. If you do, subscribe. Give me a rate on iTunes. Give me a follow. Leave me a comment. Send me an email. Um, you can follow me at Luke underscore Byler816 on Instagram uh, and on Facebook. Feel free to message me if you do enjoy this content. Uh, and as always, I'll see you guys in the next one. Okay, well, uh, we're back back again after a few weeks of being off. Um, yep. Not that those of you listening would necessarily know, although it did take me a few weeks to post the last episode. The most recent episode I posted at this time uh, was the Jonah episode, but a few more will yeah. be posted before this one does, um, and that was a lot of fun. It was. I um, very much enjoyed it. I haven't actually had the time to go back and listen. Usually after you post, I'm going to try to go back and listen just to see if I sounded stupid or if I need to like correct anything in the next episode. Um, I haven't yet. So okay. pending potential corrections. And yes, if you're watching this on film, I did accidentally shave off my goatee the other night and my mustache. Cause I like tried to go in too far. So I look like a child, but it's okay. It's going to grow back in about a month. Uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but back when my, uh, my wife and I were dating, um, I'd had a beard basically the whole time. And then one day um, my friend and I were going to meet her at a restaurant and um, she didn't know he was coming. And so I sat with my back to her because I'd shaved my beard and she had never seen me without one. And so she turns the corner and she's like, you didn't tell me Taylor was coming. And then I turn around and she's like, Oh my God, what happened to your face? <laughs> so Hit her with that double whammy. It was kind of funny. I grew my beard back and I've never shaved it since because I hated it. Nice. Yeah. Anyway. Look, I look like a child. And yeah. I and that that same moment, I said this to you earlier, at the same moment I realized how much weight I've actually gained and how fat my face looks comparatively to like even a few years ago. So just extra motivation to continue eating right and working out. So there you go. Yeah. I mean. Like I said earlier, I can't tell the difference because we met like three months ago, but you know, that's what I was. Um, but in reference to, we we recorded, our last episode, our last episode we recorded together, we talked about, uh, we were complete heretics. We talked about uh, weird views that I have of sin and about hell. Um, yeah. Just kind of playing with those ideas, seeing where they lead. Some of the issues I have with eternal conscious torment. Um on the road to being an annihilationist. Uh, and that'll be probably more talked about in a few months from now when I actually discuss that topic 
and write a paper about it for my systematic two class. So that'll be fun. Um, but in reference to that, because this will get posted after that episode, so you'll have context for that, those of you who are listening. Um, I have been in a small group and we've been reading through The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, which is a good book. Um, I wouldn't recommend it be the book you start, though. Start with Lewis. Yeah. Or, um, it is one of his first, I think, his first breakout theological work. Um, he, had a, he wrote a few things before that, but it was the one that kind of put him on the map um, very early in his theological career. Yeah, I actually haven't read that one. Uh, it's worth a read. I very much like Mere Christianity more, um, if only because many of the arguments he prefaces, he like lays the groundwork for and problem of pain the first two or three chapters. He actually makes a better argument of them in Mere Christianity, but he wrote Mere Christianity later. Gotcha. So it makes sense. Because um, yeah. I've been, as my group has been talking about the book, I will supplement points he makes with quotes from mere christianity just because he's a little bit more full in his setting up of the arguments there it goes more in depth it's a mm-hmm. phenomenal book i've recommended it to everyone who's asked me what's a good book to uh get a yeah. logical understanding yeah that one's fantastic there's a reason it has survived for so long and been a staple um uh, just for fun if i were to recommend anybody a book to start you're going to start reading Lewis. Uh, I might say screw tape letters. So my that wife might... is reading that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does she think? She loves it. She read, I think, eight chapters in one day. And I was like, whoa, oh honey, my gosh. Down. You need to slow down. Process. <laughs> so yeah. yeah they, they, what's interesting, because I've read it a few times. I wrote a, a collection of essays about it, actually. Um, that's before I was in seminary. Uh just for fun. That's how much of a nerd I am. Uh, But I found there's a rhythm to the letters. There's, you know, three little cover one kind of topic, then he'll he'll have like a transition letter. And then, you know, three or four more, we'll talk about a separate topic. So if you can catch the rhythm of that, it's kind of helpful. Um, So I'd love to read your essays on that. Yeah, I'll uh, often look at them over again see if i say anything super stupid <laughs> um but yeah i'd be happy to send them to you yeah, right um it's like i wrote one for every letter so it's like thirty thousand words it's like yeah. i wrote a book about a book so that's that's a lot that's it was a lot. it was, but that's over a two-year span oh, okay. okay and awesome. very inconsistent work over those two years yeah. probably writing if i took the time i was writing Excuse me. If I took the time I was writing consistently for for that, probably was about six months. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but over the two years, you know, I took a bunch of breaks. Yeah. Was into it. Wasn't into it. Started it. Then I restarted it. Some yeah. of them, as I was editing them, I rewrote the whole thing. Um, so yeah. But I was just trying to track his arguments, trying to make sense of them um, within the letters. I think they're very profound. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would say, yeah, probably that book or The Great Divorce are great places to start with Lewis. They're they're not as much of a, they're more of a soft entry for him because they're kind of, both of those are wrapped in narrative. His theology is kind of wrapped inside of narrative, so that makes it easier. Yeah. I actually haven't read The Great Divorce. His, um, you see, Four Loves and- One of my favorites. Were both really good. Four Loves and what? A Grief Observed. Oh, very good. Yeah um yeah don't read that if you want to be happy uh, yeah you gotta read that in preparation for a very low point in your life or after or during a very low point in your life um, yeah it should help okay so those are our recommendations if you want to start somewhere with Lucy, never read them go there yeah. uh now problem of pain he has a whole chapter on hell which i read for a group last night very interesting very interesting i would sit here and read the whole thing but then you know, we'd have no time to talk about anything else. Um, mm-hmm. What I found very interesting is he kind of lays out his, you know, the problems that we have with hell as an idea. Yeah. Um, and why they don't necessarily work. He goes through four major objections to hell. 
the people make. Um, he did talk about the classic eternal punishment for a temporary crime kind of thing. Um, and then you get to, I'll read the last two paragraphs um, or three, because I think the ending paragraph is fantastic. Um, but the fourth objection, he talks about how, how we in heaven would deal with a hell that coincides at the same time. Like how the question is, how can we be happy in heaven knowing people are now? Yeah. Which is a good, good question. Yeah. He says this, a fourth object. A fourth objection is that no charitable man could himself be blessed in heaven. while he knew that even one human soul was in hell. And if so, are we more merciful than God? At the back of this objection lies a mental picture of heaven and hell coexisting in unilinear time as the histories of England and America coexist. So that at each moment, the blessed could say the miseries of hell are now going on. But I noticed that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsurpassing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. That is, the lost soul is eternally fixed in its diabolical attitude we cannot doubt. But whether this eternally fixed implies endless duration or duration at all, we cannot say. Dr. Edwin Beaven has some interesting speculations on this point. We know much more about heaven than hell, for heaven is the home of humanity, and therefore contains all that is implied in a glorified human life. But hell was not made for men. It is, no, is, it is in no sense parallel to heaven. It is the darkness outside, the outer rim where being fades away into non-eternity. Finally, it is... Hang on. Finally, it is objected that the ultimate loss of a single soul means the defeat of omnipotence. And so it does. In creating beings with free will, omnipotence from the outset submits to the possibility of such a defeat. What you call defeat, I call miracle. For to make things which are not itself and thus to become, in a sense, capable of being resisted by its own handiwork is the most astonishingly and unimaginable of all the feats we attribute to the deity. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that the ghost may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion where an envious man wishes to be happy, but that certainly do not will, but they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self ab abandon. Oh, let me read the sentence again. Um, I do not mean that the ghost may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy, but they certainly do not, do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed, forever submitting to the obedience, become through all eternity more and more free in the long run the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question what are you asking god to do to wipe out their past sins and at all cost to give them a fresh start smooth everything difficult and offering even miraculous help but he has done so on calvary to forgive them they will not they will not be forgiven to have them alone alas I'm afraid that is what he does. One caution, and I, and I have done. In order to rouse modern minds to an understanding of the issue, I ventured to introduce in this chapter a picture of the sort of bad man whom we most easily perceive as truly bad. But when the picture has done that work, the sooner it is forgotten, the better. In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, nor our friends, since both de these disturb the reason, but of ourselves. 
This chapter is not about your wife or son, nor about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It is about you and me. I think the appropriate response to that is, damn. <laughs> that is good. Um, I'll just, I, I'll reread what I found. Go ahead. Yeah, no, say what you're going to say, because I was going to say that was so much that yeah, I yeah. had so many different thoughts throughout it, and I've lost them. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that was a long, that was a long reading, especially for Lewis. Um, I'll read the part that I found very interesting, the objection that you could be happy while hell is going on. Mm -hmm. And he says, at the back of this objection lies a mental picture of heaven and hell coexisting in unilinear time as histories of England and America coexist. So that each moment the blessed could say the miseries of hell are going on now. But I noticed that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsurpassing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. That I find to be an interesting observation that I also find to be true. Um, at least in most um, in most situations. So I have a friend who I was talking to earlier today um, on the top on this topic because he and I um, he is definitely in the eternal conscious torment camp, mm -hmm. um, and I'm on the fence. And um, I seem to just push you over the edge with a few things, don't I? Yeah, yeah. Well, and <laughs> I love having both of you because there's this tension i pushed you over the edge on adam and eve i'm gonna push you over the edge on hell you, you did. you're just i'm making you more of a heretic wow you did i forgot about that yeah i did kind of admit that while you, you were said recording. that on air it's it'll live forever yeah, on the internet it's now on the internet <laughs> okay anyway yeah no, no you, you do you do and i really like it uh, what's super funny is like now i see you as a friend whereas then i saw you as like some guy that i listened to online and so I sort of have like a disconnect in my How head. How's that transition for you? It's super weird. That anyway, is so weird to hear. I'm sure. Oh my I'm gosh. Sure. Anyway. Um, so anyway, the I was talking to him and we were talking about um, eternal conscious torment versus annihilationism versus universalism. He and I are both avidly not universalists. Mm -hmm. I'm on the fence and I think I lean a bit more towards annihilationism because I find, and he would disagree with me on this, but I find the language that usually is taken to suggest eternal conscious torment can typically be taken both ways. And then the language that tends to be suggestive of annihilationism can't really be taken in that way. And I, again, I haven't done a super deep study of it, but I think Lewis is right here is, is why I say that because his, um, my friend and I earlier, we were talking about the term Olam, which is eternity. And in mm -hmm. the old Testament it's used to denote, um, the state of the reign of the Messiah, um, and the covenant with David, right? You will reign forever and forever. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, my old Testament teacher made a very interesting point when we were talking about that, um, in our class going over first and second Kings, um, and the end obviously of second uh, Samuel. And he was talking about how, um, Olam can be used in multiple ways and it doesn't have to necessarily denote forever. So, um, it can mean forever the way we use the term forever. Oh, that took forever. We don't literally mean it took forever. We mean it took a very long time or it took way longer than it should have. Um, it can also talk reference to finality. Uh, my friend gets several Jewish and Messianic Jewish emails. He's on several lists for groups like that. And he was talking about the different ways in which they use the term olam and they use it in that way to denote finality or um, intensity of something, not necessarily duration. And so um, while obviously New Testament doesn't use a Hebrew word, um, 
I think that same concept can apply. Granted, I don't know Greek yet. I'm a little um, under a week away from starting Greek and I'm terrified. Uh, but yeah, so I think that that same principle can apply. And certainly that same principle applied culturally um, because um, most of the characters in the, the gospel specifically in the New Testament were speaking Aramaic, not Greek. So then you get that whole thing. Anyway, I digress. So I don't know, where does he fall now after thinking about all that? Um, I mean, he's still definitely eternal conscious torment. Um, but we did have an interesting discussion about that word and the way it's used. Um, and I, I don't think he's going to be persuaded because he's thought this through pretty, pretty hardcore. And he's definitely more passionate about this specific topic than I am. Um, I, and I think in a, in a good way. Um, okay. But yeah, it, I don't know. It's I'd love to see the two of you talk about it. I would love to talk to him about it, especially once I've done, you know, more pointed research. Yeah. Um, well, in a couple months, I can set that up. Okay. Um, yeah, it was funny <laughs> and, you know, good or bad, you can take this, but I, when we started talking in our group last night about, uh, this chapter, uh, I said, yeah, I've actually been kind of, I said, is it weird to say I enjoyed reading a chapter about hell? Cause I've actually been like studying this for a few weeks now. Yeah. And so the guy that my pastor, the gatherings in our group was like, was that out of like, uh, compassion that you were like talking and i was like not at all it's purely <laughs> an intellectual exercise yeah yeah <laughs> and i've even made this comment about um right like I'm, i might have made it in our last episode about this but i definitely have said things like no my my view of hell is not to make it more palatable for me yeah it's not to make me feel better about people who end up there yeah in my mind, it might be even worse because you just aren't anymore. Yeah. Right. I don't think yeah. that's better. Yeah. It's just yeah. a different kind of separation. It's more permanent, actually. Um. That's true. I, um, I mean, on that, I know that there are certain Eastern religions specifically that have the idea of... Um, not existing anymore um, as the ideal. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's, it's interesting to hear you say that. And then typically the critique of people who are eternal conscious torment is, oh, well, you're just trying to make it an easier pill to swallow. And I think there are some people who do take universalist or annihilationist positions who are motivated by that. I am not. I, I, but again, I don't see like... Yeah. Sorry, I just get off on this topic too long, but like I don't see that as a viable critique because I, at least on the annihilationism side, because as far as I can tell, it doesn't sound more palatable. Yeah. Right. At least in my head, maybe to you, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, be better to die than like torment forever. Sure. But yeah. I don't, again, like our, our whole language around it, like, is Satan down there in the flames, like whipping your back? I doubt it. Yeah. I don't, even if it is forever, I don't, this is why yeah. Lewis's language is so helpful. I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. Well, and um, I think yeah, I have a, I have a short, a shorter section for sure that I want to, I want to hit on okay. this because he talks about this in the, his yeah. third objection is the intensity and pains of hell. As, as suggested by Moodyville Art and indeed by certain passages in scripture. And he taught, he makes the Mackey argument basically like before him, obviously, but like the argument of like, these are images we're given. These aren't, you know, how we should base our theology around what it actually is. And I think his similar to, again, like I would never try and pit um, Lewis as an annihilationist. I don't think he is. I just think, I think he sees it as a viable option. Yeah. Right. But from what I'm about to read, I don't think you could say, ah, there there's that statement he's an annihilationist for sure yeah. um but again i think in the like degenerative nature of what i was talking about last time i think this works well he says um 
but is it not necessary to concentrate on the images of torture to the exclusion of those suggested destruction and privation? What, mm-hmm. um, what can that be whereof all three images are equally proper symbols? Destruction, we should naturally assume, means the unmaking or cessation of the destroyed. And people often talk as if the annihilation of a soul were intrinsically possible. In all our experiences, however, the destruction of one thing means the emergence of something else. Burn a log and you have gases, heat, and ashes. Bars. Um, To have been a log means now being those three things. If a soul can be destroyed, must there not be a state of having been a human soul? And is not that perhaps the state which is equally well described as torment, destruction, and privation? He's so he's not there, but he's like on the doorstep. Yeah. You will remember to quote again. You will remember that in the parable, the saved go to a place prepared for them, while the damned go to a place never made for men at all. To enter, and this is the important line, I think, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast or cast itself into hell is not a man. It is remains. To be a complete man means to have the passions obedient to the will and the will offered to God. To have been a man, to be an X-man, E-X-M-A-N, or damned ghost, would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered in itself and passions, utterly uncontrolled by the will. It is, of course, impossible to imagine what the consciousness of such a creature, already a loose congress, already a loose... um, Congeries, C-O-N-G-E-R-I-E-S. I don't know. Of mutually agnostic sin rather than a sinner would be like. There may be a truth in saying that hell is hell, not from its own point of view, but from the heavenly point of view. I do not think this bellies the severity of our Lord's words. It is only to the damned that their fate could ever seem less than unendurable. And it must be admitted that as these last chapters, we think of eternity, the categories of pain and pleasure which have engaged us so long begin to reduce as vaster good and evil loom in sight. I mean, all, all I can really say to that is part of the crew and part of the ship. I mean, that feels yeah, exactly, exactly. The, the degenerative state in which you become makes you less and less who you were and more and more the things with which you decided to be. Um, This works very well with the, the quote we read from the great divorce about, you know, you only become the rumble of your unrestrained passions. I'll read this these two sentences in the middle. Again, I think the most important to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth to enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast or cast itself into hell is not a man. It is remains. To be a complete man means to have the passions obedient to the will and the will offered to God. To have been a man, to be an ex-man or damned ghost, would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered in itself and passions utterly uncontrolled by the will. Yeah. Well, and that goes down to um, what's the one fruit of the spirit that is different than the others that sort of sticks off the end and it's self-control. Mm-hmm. Because if you have self-control, you operate in those other states, um, generally speaking. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. nuance there. but um, And I, I do think that that's sort of the purpose of the Genesis 2 and 3 story and then the Genesis 4 and beyond um, with Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, all of that is this idea of excuse me, are you a man or are you a monster? And which one of those are you going to live in, live into? Because you have that choice. And the, um, and on the one side, right, if we're going to choose Eden, we choose to be a man. We choose to 
or human, I guess, if you want to remain gender neutral, we choose to be Adam, right? Yeah. Human humanity. And we choose to be self-controlled, trusting God in relationship with God, all of those things. Self-control being a key marker. And if we choose to not trust God, not trust the way that the world works, not trust the, the framework that we've been placed into, then we become the monster because we abuse ourselves, we abuse other, others, and um, ultimately we degenerate into just those things. I mean, you see it all the time with um, the ways in which people who operate selfishly, sort of, it becomes cyclical. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or seen this in your own life, but I've seen people who operate selfishly continue, like the, their selfishness almost grows exponentially to the point mm -hmm. where yeah. they, they aren't who they were before they started that downward spiral. Um, so I don't know. I think there's really something there. That's, that's really good. And I think there's something there that'll lead into several topics we plan on talking about later. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. I kept reading that chapter and I was like, Ooh, I, cause like I, I said the other week, like I'm stealing all this imagery from him, but like mm -hmm. that just confirmed more and more my thinking it was like, Oh, he's on this train too. Yeah. Like, I think he's definitely yeah, the degenerative nature, especially is very important to him. Yeah. I think is, is very, very plausible and works very well. Yeah. No, I really like the idea of degenerative, of the degenerative state. I think that's more in line with, um, more in line with the biblical story as it's been laid out. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what else do you have on that? Um, nothing. It just makes me think of the the Peterson quote, and he said this on he said this probably in his classes, but I know the fam the famous clip comes from his first Rogan interview or second second Rogan interview actually. Um, he was still wearing those awfully colored mustard red shirts um, before he became a status uh, or a like style icon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, he talks about this is a very, as most of his stuff is a very young age idea, but integration of the shadow. And he talks about how, you know, young men are always told you should be, you know, nice. You should be harmless. Be weak. Mm -hmm. He says no. It's exactly the opposite. You should be a monster. You should be able to be a monster, yeah. and then you learn how to control it. Yeah, that's that's actually super interesting too because my friend that I was talking about with earlier today, he was talking about, um, I'd love for the two of you to have a conversation. I need to set this up. Yeah. He was talking about how um, he, military ideas are what made his faith real. Mm. Uh, he was reading a couple of novels and I'll one day let him tell the full story. Um, I'll just kind of gloss over, but he was reading a bunch of novels, uh, science fiction novels. I think there were Star, yeah, Star Wars novels that used- Is he your friend that's a Sanderson fan? Uh, yes, he is. Okay, I'll have to read some Sanderson, and then we can talk about him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll give you a book recommendation. He actually bought uh, my wife a Sanderson book for as like a wedding present because um, okay. she loves. So anyway, so he was reading some novels, and there was a, a set of characters who operate within a very militaristic mindset, and but it's not militaristic in the normal oppressive or um, violent sense. It was more like the honorable sense. Yeah. And um, so he was, we were talking today and he was just going on about how these, these characters and the honor and the camaraderie and all of those aspects really helped that they were very formative in his Christian walk mm. because he saw those things as Christian ideals Mm -hmm. that then we as Christians don't live up to most of the time. Um, and so talking about, you know, the integration of the shadow, the monster within and needing a monster within. Um, 
I think that goes well in line with that and that you have to have some kind of firm, strong, and almost, almost violent ability. Um, I mean, I think the protection of people who are being abused requires that, yeah. right? Like, like if I'm going to protect someone, I can't just say, Hey, now stop, stop hurting them. It, you know, be nice. That, that doesn't work with people who, who are in a violent for selfish reasons, state of mind. Right. Yeah. Um, I, there was a, a cop who went to my church and in fact, my pastor, um, actually one time got called out. I was in the office, the church office working as a youth pastor. And my pastor got a call from one of the cops in the community and was like, Hey, um, I'm at a call and someone, um, is, I can't remember if she was suicidal or what, but it was essentially like that this person is having some problems. They requested some, like a, a pastor's presence. So I'm calling you, can you come, come back and, or come over and, um, talk, like talk through this with them. I'll be present. I'll keep you safe. Like it'll, um, so anyway, he gets there and I didn't go with him. I kept the office kind of hunkered down, but he, he gets there and they're like frantic and crazy and manacle essentially they're just like flying off the wall and so he says you know they're having a conversation and the cop gets up in their face so this is a christian cop who um is like christian and professes to live you know right but this this cop is like getting up in this person's face cussing and being very very forceful because in later um he tells our pastor this, like, I did that because that is the language they speak. If I got up to this person, I said, hey, be nice, calm down. They're not going to respond. Hmm. There comes a point in time where we're past civil discourse. Hmm. And the threat of force is all that the only language that will be spoken to people in that state. And I thought that was super interesting because there's this ideal right to be nice and be passive. And, but the, I, I feel like there comes a point when the rubber hits the road that that doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. And, and so, you know, you have to have a bit of that, that monster within and you don't let the monster rule, right? Like that's mm -hmm. not what I'm saying. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. No, and I don't think that's what Peterson says either. Yeah. It's not his Self-control, I think, is the most important fruit of the spirit, like I said earlier. Because if you have that, you can control all of the aspects about you that aren't good. And there are a lot more than just this monster, this violent monster within. But I think you need forcefulness. You need um there comes a point in time when you need to know that like you're going to commit all the way. And if if I have to be violent with someone who's abusing someone else in order to get them to stop, like it, I feel like it's my responsibility, right. To protect that innocent person. So like, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I digress. Um, you got me off on a little bit of a tangent, I guess, but super interesting. yeah. No, what I was going to say is this is why this is jujitsu. This is what jujitsu taught me. I, I've done jujitsu on and off. Uh, I have two, probably actually. probably for a combined like two years. What? I have two actually for about two to three years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got back into it before COVID started and nice. I moved. Um, what going back to it taught me, I did it for a few reasons. A, mm -hmm. because I, I wanted, this might sound a little arrogant, but like I wanted something that I wasn't good at. Yeah. I wanted to be an idiot to okay. actually have to learn. I understand. Right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I wasn't going to grad school at the time. I was about to graduate from, I had actually already graduated from Missouri State. So I was not, you know, in school at the time. Um, no, that makes perfect sense. And so, like, I just had this big conquering moment off, and I was like, okay, what's my new challenge? Well, my challenge became going to jiu jitsu class. 
And you'll get the crappy out of you there too. So Oh yeah. Here's what's super interesting about jujitsu. And here's why I think that it's like to your point about, and Peterson makes him a reference as well. Like to your point of someone who's a monster and controls it is uh, Jocko Willink. Great Mm -hmm. example. Yeah. You can tell that he is a man who is capable of destruction. Yeah. And he can, he has self-control. Yeah. A lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so that is very commendable. Yeah. And Jocko talks about jiu-jitsu as like a superpower. And like I, I began to understand why. For, there's a couple of reasons. One, one thing it taught me specifically was I am far too passive. Yeah. Because I had, and this is part of the beauty of the, of the like martial art, is it's not about who can hit the hardest. No, not at all. It is, do you know what you're doing? And if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get messed up. Yes. Right. This is why I had a kid who's like six years younger than me and is a blue belt and just like spinning me around the mat. Right. Yeah. Um, but I had like older guys in my gym, like older, fit, they're like very fit guys. People have been doing it for a couple of years. And one of them, I remember specifically, we were, we were rolling one night just doing, you know, practice at the end of at the end of the class, you know, you roll for six minutes and it's like whoever taps and you start over and you go again. Yeah. And you just kept being like, I, I would like get in out and get my hooks in and like yeah. pin them into the ground. And he'd just be like, no, do it harder. Yeah. Like make it hurt. Yeah. Right. Like keep like, no, really like go at me. Mm-hmm. Right. And cause I was going at like 70%. Yeah. And he's like, no, yeah. like, like go. And I was like, Oh, I'm too passive. Yeah. Right. Um, that, so that was one thing it taught me, which was super interesting, super interesting. So like, Oh, I'm too passive. Like, I don't know. I don't really know my own strength. Um, and then B, the other thing that's super interesting about it is you're in a room with people who can kill you. Yeah. And they, we all, we all as a group decide not to. Yeah. That's why you respect the tap. Cause yeah. like, if you don't, you could kill someone yep, or seriously hurt someone. Like, yeah, they will not be able to use their arm forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we had a sign at the gym and it, it said, it was by the water fountain. It said something like the most important, the most important person in this gym isn't you, it's your partner because without them, you can't, you can't train. Yeah. And so there's a sense in which we are all to borrow young in language, like, within jujitsu class we're all integrating the shadow yeah because mm-hmm. we all are testing our strength and we're all understanding that like we could kill each other but we're not going to yeah yeah when super so, interesting when i was going to jujitsu like you're so right and the beautiful thing about jujitsu is that it allows the people who you know if you're in a boxing class or you know, whatever, if you're in one of those classes, it allows the people who wouldn't be able to compete in those situations to really learn. Like you said, it's all about the knowledge, right? If you know more and your reflexes have integrated these into their system more, you, um, you stand a better chance. Mm -hmm. And so I, I will never forget it. I was, uh, you know, we did like a roll circle. So you roll with one person and then you rotate to the next person and then you rotate um, all around. And um, there were only a couple of women in the class. Well, I got paired up with one of them and she was a blue belt. I'm still a white belt. I, I haven't gone in years. I'd love to get back into it at some point, but that's for another season of life, I guess. Um, but anyway, so she was a blue belt, which means she knows what she's doing at least a little bit. Yeah. A lot more than I did. Um, and she tied me in a knot straight up. Like I did not matter. And I wasn't bad either. I rolled with the the teacher, like either directly before or directly after her. And obviously he's playing with me. Right. But I was able to like do a few moves on him. Right. And yeah. And keep up a little bit, but she didn't hold back until right the tap and so there comes a point 
right? Where you can let loose and let go, like you're talking about, you know, give it 100%, don't 70% it, like, don't be passive. Dude, and it's disrespectful. That was the other thing I learned that night is like, yeah. no, I'm disrespecting you as my opponent in this moment, as yeah. my, you know, training partner. I'm disrespecting you that you actually can't take all of it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing too, right? I didn't disrespect her, like being a woman in this class, I knew up front she was going to destroy me. And so like, I knew I couldn't hold back because if I did, I was dead faster. Yeah. Right. And so there's this interesting, like equalizing force about it. Oh yeah. Same time. It's, it's all about that. I don't know. Like you said, we, we all know that we can kill each other. We all know that if we let the monster out, bad things will happen. And we all don't. So, yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful point. And, um, yeah, I never thought about that before. Yeah. No, that I had when, when – and he was, like, 55, dude, like, but mm-hmm. ripped and, like, yeah. very good. And someone yeah. who did not hold back. And I think – to him, he was almost like, dude, you're disrespecting me. Yeah. Like, come on. I know you're strong. I know you're heavy. Like, like, scoot my legs and sit on me with all your weight. Like, yeah. don't half-ass this shit. Like, and that's the thing, too. That's the thing, too. My dad one time was talking, because I used to go with my dad. Uh, he was talking about how um, you could, like, you can tell when someone knows what they're doing because they are so much heavier they might not even oh, be yeah. a person but when they sit on you you they are crushing you it is crazy and so yeah the they they do not hold back but at the same time they they do when it counts you know yeah and and that comes down to the, the virtue of self-control um, that ability to say enough to use some so is jujitsu a spiritual discipline i don't know maybe i don't know i have actually (laughs) thought about at one point starting a like small group or something and getting some like jujitsu people together because i do think that there are very um very interesting spiritual disciplines that are involved in combat um and martial arts and things like that but I don't know. Um, anyway, that's, I guess that all came because I was brought up my friend's uh, military stuff. Yeah. He, he has yeah. a very interesting story about that, that he could do a better job. No, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah. And like, I think we, you know, all the people who paint Jesus as, Oh, he's such a nice guy. Have you read the stuff that he says and does? Yeah. Like, He's he is not nice. He's not a passive person. No, he's very fierce. Yeah. And I think that com- goes back to the um that Aslan, that quote about Aslan. Um, is he safe? No, but, he's yeah. not safe, but he's good. Yeah. And I I remember I probably told you this before, but I was delivery driving while listening to you read that I legitimately started crying like because it's so beautiful right and um you know I show up to the door with the pizza and I've got like <laughs> but um, which, which episode was that I don't remember I don't um, remember either but I think you were talking about the horse and his boy at one point and you read an excerpt from it oh yeah that was the talk I gave at uh Ichthus. yeah yeah yeah. Okay, yeah 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 um yeah so I don't know it was I think that really is true. Like Jesus isn't tame, but he's, he's not, he's not bad. He's not violent. He's not destructive. And I think that's a tension that both like more conservative leaning and more liberal leaning Christians struggle with because I know a lot of scholars who point out the not tame tendencies of jesus and 
but even in that the textbook that I was reading you earlier, I think it was before we were on air. Yeah. Um, and there's this, there's this idea that, oh, Jesus is like dangerous and not as like, not as idealistic as we make him out to be. Um, and we have to maybe temper some of the words that have been said um, in the Bible. And I don't think that's the case because I think we're supposed to live in that tension and recognize that life is complicated and life is challenging. And in that complex, in the complex state of the world, that tension is something that we all have to live into. And I think Jesus walked it perfectly and we never will. We should use him as the example too. Um, and you could definitely argue, and I would, that So there's that scene in Mark where Jesus is hanging up on the cross and the crowd passes by and they say, oh, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And I wrote about this and I think I put it in my paper. At the moment of highest humiliation was actually the moment of Jesus' greatest display of power yeah because he chose not to mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that's the biggest act of self-control i can think of is to be mocked while suffering knowing you knowing can you can say you can do something about it yeah and not and still let it happen it's, it's that subversive and again you know i complain about non-violence for the sake of non-violence but i also think that like that is the ideal right is is don't like hang hang on that cross willingly i think we need to protect others we need to protect those who can't do anything for themselves but like i don't think i think the christian ideal is ultimately to At some point, lay down your life in ways that Jesus laid his down. King commies, look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. If I can't give them back, then you look like.